thank you so much for joining us. This is great. Thank yeah. you, Elsie, for putting this together. I'm excited Whoa. to uh, get down to this conversation, which is super important. Um, welcome to another episode of Real Talk with Bella. We're going to get right, shoot right in and, and get started. Um, Ilsi has been talking very highly uh, about the work that you both do and um, the event that you have coming up um, this week, correct? October 1st? Thursday. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, we're speaking today to Sherry Critical. Critical, I hope I said that correctly. <laughs> <laughs> Founder of Victim's Voice uh, and, at, and serves as the Chief Executive Officer um, uh, as a survivor of child abuse and domestic violence. She has devoted herself to ensuring victims of discrimination, harassment, and abuse are heard, believed, and able to seek legal justice. Uh, so incredible the work it, that you do. Thank you so much for joining us, Sherry. Bill Mitchell, author of When Dating Hurts. Um, Bill and Michelle Mitchell's daughter, Kristen, was murdered by her ex-boyfriend in her apartment outside of Philadelphia. Since then, Bill has passionately spoken out for education about the warning signs and dangerous consequences of dating violence. Uh, so sorry about that, Bill, but um, I'm sure that uh, your daughter is looking down, seeing the amazing work that you are doing, um, because um, I, am, I am personally very, very uh, proud of the fact that we're having this conversation, which is always so necessary and so important to have. And last but not least, Ilse, Miss New Jersey for America, and of course, Abella Love Files contributor, crowned Miss New Jersey in August of 2020, a domestic violence survivor herself. She has partnered with Victims Voice app to help pass a legislative law that will prohibit awarding alimony to domestic violence offenders. Okay, wow. so there's a lot. This is a very heavy topic. Um, extremely heavy. Uh, we know that it exists. We know that it happens. But uh, when we give it light, people tend to shy away from the conversation uh, because it is not an easy conversation to have. You know, I remember um, jokingly because I too am a survivor of sexual assault, and I went to very through various relationships where. Um, never really physical abuse, but almost physical abuse, verbal abuse. Uh, so, and we think that uh, for some reason that this is okay. And I, and I know that a lot of it had to do with unhealed trauma that I had from my past. Uh, and therefore I felt like these were the relationships that um, we deserved, right? Or that I deserved. And there, through my life, I have found that there are more women like me who are still finding themselves in those situations. So um, where do we even begin? Like, how do we begin to unpack all of this? Uh, Bill, if you would like to start sharing a little bit about your journey. Um, yes, sure. Uh, you know, my, my journey got off to a, a rough start. Uh, my, my journey started with a phone call from po local police detectives. I live outside of Baltimore. And my daughter uh, at, at that time was a recent graduate of St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia. But I got a call from detectives who needed to meet with me to tell me something in person that they could not tell me over the phone. I had no idea what it was. And so uh, I uh, received what anyone would refer to as a parent's worst nightmare at, uh, by the automatic doors of a grocery store where I met with these people. and. Uh, saw the badges and uh, 
and then wanted to stay right there. Uh, didn't want to get in their car and hear it, although they wanted me to, because you can never be sure who you're meeting up with on a rainy Friday evening in the, in the dark. And yeah, that's what got us going. And you know, the, the first year was really about understanding what happened, you know, not just to Kristen, but what does happen, because we had all the cliche stereotypes of, of uh, who this happens to, you know, what neighborhoods and what socioeconomic uh, worlds these people supposedly live in, having no idea that it's equally everywhere, which I've learned and read about plenty over the last 15 years. This happened 15 years ago. But um, so I won't give you a history lesson, but I'm just saying that <clears throat> we had a lot of catching up to do, as most people would if they put as much effort into it as we have. And so over the years, I've done a lot of speeches. And then, then the, the, the big achievement, a few years ago, I committed to writing a book, which came out in May just a few months ago. And it's being well received, but it's self-published. So I'm, I'm doing all the pushing on that book, but it's doing well. It's honestly doing well. And so I'm just well, happy. We ha you, you have our support. So um, because here's one of the things that um, you touched upon that I think is very important that we reiterate, you know, this can happen to anyone. And I think that um, that is the big misconception that this only, you know, applies to uh, a specific group of people that live in a certain area. And I was actually very uh, surprised having gone through the system it, myself uh, that in my own neighborhood, uh, there are many more cases than one would um, imagine. And um, it's really about, I think nobody wants to come to terms with the fact that this is literally happening either right next door or it's happening in your own home. Because I think it takes you to a place of uh, denial. For, for many of us, I know that I was in denial for a very long time. I was like, this could absolutely not be me. You know, this, is, this happens to other people. I am not that girl. Uh, but, you know, when I had to face uh, the facts and, and, and really understand, you know, what it was what it was costing me, right? Because it wasn't just costing me my self-peace and my self-preservation, you know, it was also um, my children at one point. So it really is, um, you know, one of those things that we have to take a heart, just like any sort of addiction, just like any sort of uh, mental health situation, you know, the acceptance part, I think, is the most difficult part. Um, Sherry, let's, let's jump to you for a second. How did you get to where you are at this point because it takes a special um, kind of, um, I don't even want to say courage, although it is courage. And I think that, um, I don't know if you could relate to this because I know for a very long time when I came to terms with the fact of what had happened to me, I never wanted to be seen as a victim, right? I, I didn't want people to take pity on me, um, but, you've created, uh, you know, you've rallied kind of like the troops around this. Um, how, how does one get to that place? So a little bit of backstory. I too, um, it, for me, it wasn't denial. It was a, it was a life. Um, yep. I actually lost my virginity at age two at the hands of my father. Wow. Um, he was prosecuted, got six weekends in jail. Um, and when you grow up in that kind of environment, because I was 17 when he was arrested, um, that's the norm. You just don't know any different. So 
I think it was when I was probably close to 30 that I finally said enough, you know, and then you're right. You don't want to be identified as the victim, but you're dealing with a lot of trauma, PTSD. Um, so I, you know, packed it up and really focused on healing. Um, I worked in enterprise tech for a long time. So for me, technology was always about what you can do for companies. Um, you know, and you didn't, I didn't really think of it as a social impact type of thing until uh, in 2016, my then 10 year old daughter built an anti-bullying mobile app for her science fair project. And wow. we were invited to speak at a developer's conference. <laughs> <laughs> they come out of the womb coding anymore. Yeah. <laughs> So it was really in that Q&A session of that developers conference that my two worlds really collided, the technology piece and the experiential piece. And I started looking at this from, you know, this could be so much more than just a science fair project. And so that's when I really started digging in to what are some of the real core issues, um, who's working on what and where's the gap? And for us, the gap was that there were people when a, when a victim slash survivor picks up the phone and makes the call to the police or a shelter or whatever, um, they're taken care of as far as, you know, their immediate needs are, are met and they go through that process. Where I saw a huge gap was that uh, these individuals were going through so much experience and um, no one was believing them. And no one was able to take a case through court because there wasn't any evidence for the sheer nature of the type of crime that it is. It's gradual, it's grooming, and it's behind closed doors. So that's where and I we decided to focus. Jump in to what exactly what you just said, where the gaps are, because I don't think the gap is necessarily in the aftermath. I think the gap is in the initial part, right? Like the, and you just put it on the head is, who do I talk to? Because if I say this, no one's going to believe me or no one, you know, um, it's, it's just so surreal at times to even read these stories that we've, you know, because the buzz is there. We're having the conversation, but it's typically after something either horrific has happened or um, there's actual visual signs of it happening. And it's right. so disheartening because it can be, I don't even know if prevented would be, but I think it could be stopped so much more um, easily if in the initial stages as it's, you know, we felt more comfortable. And I, so when I say we, I mean women in general or the victim itself just became more, they knew that there was a resource that um, they could pinpoint them to, you know, the next steps of the process. Yeah, you know, there's an expression getting away with murder, but there's a there's less than 2% prosecution rate on these types of crimes. So they're getting away with everything. And yeah. that's, that's where I saw that we could contribute. And so okay. that's what Victim's Voice is. It's an it's a tool to help them collect their truth their stories, yeah. their evidence, and compile it in such a way that it is evidentiary in nature and can stand up in court. That's yeah. amazing. And Elsie, 
Um, how did you, obviously through your personal connection, uh, through the organizations, um, how did we connect the dots here to Bill and Sherry uh, in the work that you're doing currently uh, through your crown? <laughs> <laughs> well, as a survivor, um, I remember being it so difficult to collect the evidence that I needed in order to go to the legal process. And I remember having to write things down on paper, having to submit police reports, how difficult it was for me. And it lasted about two years before I, we, I actually went to court um, to testify against my abuser. Now, if I would have known about Victim's Voice app, if my life probably would have been a lot easier back then, um, because this app is, you know, you could use it in court legally. Um, so when I was introduced to Sherry, and Sherry and I had a cup of coffee, and we kind of brainstormed and how we could like, you know, bring this to everyone's attention, I was just so grateful that she was just alive to create something like this, because I wished I had this years ago. Yeah. You know, through my, my pageant, um, I've been fortunate enough that a lot of people want to hear what I have to say. Um, through this, I've been uh, leading initiatives with uh, a big you know, Fortune 500 company, actually, in the conversations with them to see how we could provide this type of information to their employees, because I think it's necessary. And like Sherry said, a majority of the cases are dismissed due to lack of evidence, which is terrible. No one should ever have to live that way. You know, like you're, you're being uh, terrorized, you're being abused emotionally, financially, and I'll get into what, what I mean by financially and physically to only have your case thrown out because it's not enough evidence. It's terrible. So, I think, yeah, I think too, a lot of people don't even, you know, I've lived through different types of abusive situations throughout my life as well. Um, and I've seen firsthand, you know, my mother go through the same thing. And I think people don't even necessarily take the steps to move forward because they don't, one, have the resources. They don't think, you know, people will believe them and they don't really even know where to start. So I think having that is, it's so crucial because people unfortunately get stuck in these situations and they stay and people ask, well, why didn't you leave? Well, it's not as easy as just yeah. packing up and walking out the front door. So it's, yeah. Yeah. So I think it's important, you know, with this initiative to kind of educate, continue to educate people. You know, we all know that domestic violence happens. We're aware of that. But we are not all aware of what resources we do have that's out there. You know, um, one of the things that I'm really um, looking to pass this law against, you know, just these abusers receiving alimony from their victims. Mm -hmm. You know, it's male or women. Let's say you make more money than he does and you're finally going through a divorce to get away from him or from her. And through the criminal court, they don't speak to each other. So, you know, alimony could last anywhere between three to 10 years. Could you imagine having to pay your abuser just for peace in your life? Yeah, it's it's absolutely I, I, That's one of the things that always gets me is how the system is um, not built for uh, with the victim in mind. And um, 
you know, the, again, we, we, we're, we more easily believe people with visual signs than um, with non-visual signs. And that's, I think that the gut, the gut wrenching part of it. Um, I wanted for um, the sake of uh, our listeners to, you know, because we've hit a lot of different things here in a very short amount of time, um, because this is a very dense topic, you know, we could spend hours uh, literally talking about this just because we have all had um, some sort of experience and, you know, what did you do, what did I do, uh, what did Jennifer do, etc. But what, um, what's something like one big piece of advice that you could each give to someone who may be listening like what would be a a, a first step for them to get um to an initial part of the resolution of you know because this is you know something i know for a fact that it takes years for someone to just realize that they're being abused um so let's say they're there what do they do next Um, I think what I would say is um, the first thing just to, to help them realize what's happening to them is trust your gut. If it doesn't feel right, it probably isn't. Um, and too often, we, especially as women, tend to just push that away and tell ourselves that, well, if we work a little harder, we can fix this or for a little bit nicer, um, then, you know, the situation will be better. It's not our problem to fix. So listen to your gut. And the, I think one of the most important things, and one of the things that's going to be touched on in our conference, and I think is so ultimately important, is hope. Don't lose hope. Um, because once that's gone, everything's gone. And there's always a way. There's always someone out there somewhere that can help or get you in the right direction or just be there to listen. But hope is so important. Bill? Yes, I mean, uh, a, a couple thoughts come to mind. One of them is that, that for, well, I like what Sherry said because I've given speeches and at the end of them, I've had people who were either a ninth grader, a young girl, came up to me and said she dated a guy for a year and she'd been away from him now for a few months, but she didn't realize it was abuse until she heard the speech. She knew he was difficult. She knew he could be trouble, but she didn't think of it as literally being abuse. And it's interesting that, that she said that to me, and yet someone who probably was in her late 40s came up to me at an energy company in, in the... Uh, in Pennsylvania, and said a similar thing, that she'd been putting up with her husband all this time. And, uh, and, and, in, uh, and in one instance, someone came up and spoke with me, and I came back and spoke at that same, it was a uh, same place. And I came back four years later, and she came up with a big smile and says, well, I'm divorced and I'm remarried, got a whole different guy now, thanks to your speech four years ago. So kind of turned, wow. the, turned the lights on. Um, the, the only statistic I, I use in my book and the only one I use in speeches is this one. <clears throat> it's very easy to remember, but it's one in three women will suffer serious physical violence in an intimate partner relationship sometime in their lifetime. So that's one in three. And typically it happens between the ages of 16 and 24. My daughter was 21 she, when she was murdered, but that's one in three women. Now that's physical. And we've been talking a little bit here about emotional. 
I don't know what that particular statistic yeah. is. And I guarantee you a lot of women go through it and they don't go running off to a statistician and say, well, put another number down because yeah. I'm going through that too. But if it's one in three women are physically abused or you know, hit and strangled and all kinds of horrible things, you know the number has to be quite a lot larger for emotional abuse. I know the sexual is three in five. Three out of five women have been, or, you know, have, through okay. their lives, five women have had some sort yeah, of sexual assault it. or encounter in their life, which is quite honestly, again, gut-wrenching and, and disturbing. In your particular case though, Bill, because you're a parent, um, like what is a warning sign for uh, a parent who may be listening who, um, you know, without wanting to be, because I know I can be mama bear because of what I've been through. And my oldest son tells me this all the time. Like, my God, you know, are you going to ever let me go? And I'm like, dude, you're 11. No, <laughs> wait till you're 18. Cause it's, it's going to get even worse. Um, but I also know for a fact that that has the, the fact that I've been through that type of trauma in my life is what makes me so overbearing uh, to an extent with them. But how can we as a parent, parent without, be, you know, and also see and, and help our child kind of come to terms if they are in a situation like this to speak up and come to us or someone for help? Well, I'm glad you mentioned the warning signs part because that's what I'll be speaking out at, at the uh at the conference we're doing in two days. You know, that's my, I'm the 10 o'clock guy. And uh, so thanks to Sherry for putting that together, but I'll be on talking about that for about a half an hour. But, but these are signs that, that there were plenty of signs that, um, that I saw in some emails to Kristen and I didn't realize till I went back sometime later and read them again. Once I knew what warning signs were, um, I, I've circled them, you know, and it's, it's a shame. There's one email where I could circle seven of them and, and I'll be presenting that. But to your point about warning signs, you know, those are those are those uh, those are the signs of the red flags or whatever you want to call them, the clues that a relationship is unhealthy. Now, I'll go through just a quick list because because it's important at least to get some get some real ones. They all are based upon power and control of one person, the abuser over the abused person. So an example would be constant put downs, where somebody's just always finding that gives you a nickname you don't like. Um, is bugging you uh, because of the way you look in one way or another, whether it could be your weight or your hair or the way you dress. God, I can't believe you dress like that, that type of thing. But somebody who does that, but it's that constant controlling dominant behavior. Uh, could be somebody who picks up your cell phone and wants to see who you've been calling lately or checks your emails or looks at your text messages. You know, somebody who just feels they have permission to kind of like go into your life in different ways. The guy that killed my daughter. Uh, you can see it in her emails. You can hear it from her friends all after the fact, after, you know, too late. He was a very jealous guy and therefore jealousy and isolation kind of go hand in hand. He tried his best to isolate Kristen from uh, her mother and was successful. He definitely isolated her from a lot of her friends, but it's pretty much like the, the attitudes. It's all about me, you know, and, uh, but you know, it was, uh, he, one of the things I saw in her next to last email to me was that she kept saying in there, I have to figure out some way to get some space. Right. And I know from her friends, that was her way of saying, I need to get back to me. You know, I'm a different yeah. person when I'm around him. So 
she, her friends, her family, even her teachers, they didn't know any about this stuff. They knew nothing about this stuff. And so what happened probably seriously would have been prevented because one of us would have said, Kristen, look, this is a toxic relationship, whether you recognize it or not. You need to, and we'll go with you, we'll need to make some calls, national domestic violence people, see a counselor, do something, but we need to do something so you understand what's going on. And, uh, and but, but the other thing I think that was said just before this too, was that unless the person who's being abused kind of bottoms out and says, I can't do this anymore, that person will hang in that relationship way past what you would think is reasonable. They'll yeah. just keep sticking to it. They'll make excuses for the abuser. Um, they'll accidentally sometimes enable the abuser, defend the abuser, which is also enabling, which also causes more isolation. So yeah, there, there are a lot of things that could, uh, could make these horrible stories not happen or slow to a crawl and maybe go away. And, and, and just very quickly, breaking up is the most dangerous time, which my daughter's uh, cautionary tale is all about that because she did it completely wrong. She, uh, she broke up with this guy in, uh, all alone by herself in her apartment, and she didn't realize what a tiger he could be when he, uh, you know, when he exploded and he, he exploded. Yeah. yeah. So. so sorry. I mean, I, I hear that with um, a lot of pain because I know I, um, I just can relate to the fact of the realization moment for me. And I think um, just so for anyone who's listening, if, you know, if you're going through that moment where um, I think for me was, you know, I considered myself smart enough to know better. And I couldn't admit to myself that I had allowed, you know, this person to kind of con come in and control, you know, me, because I was this independent woman and yada, yada. But here I was, you know, isolated from my family um, and being financially abused, emotionally abused. Again, the, the physical, it never got to be physical, but it got to be, it got to the point where it was incredibly toxic, draining, um, and um, just exhausting, and you know, and no way for anyone to live. Um, what is- I think uh, Bill touched on something really important when he said sure. that um, uh, people have to bottom out. And I think there's one person in the equation that we kind of forget about, and that's the person who's maybe a family member or a close friend that sees their family member or close friend going through this, but that person hasn't bottomed out yet. And so a lot of what we do is we actually also help that other side, that bystander, be able to suggest certain things to get that information in front of them to start that thought process going. Um, so that's really important as well. As if you say that, and now I feel like now because I know better, whenever I see something in someone who was close to me, I literally like jump in and I'm like, hey, <laughs> hey girl, come here. Let me sit you down. Let's have a conversation. Here are some resources. Like read this list. The, the, you know, can you check off at least three of these things? Because then this means that you're in this type of situation so well, and I think too just listening to you list you know the warning signs when you're in that situation at least for me it was 
you know, well, it hasn't reached this level yet. Yeah. So I'm okay. So I'm still in a safe Like zone. me, it was like, you know, well, he hasn't hit me. So it really right. isn't da-da-da, you know? And um, people discredit, I think, yeah. the, the, I guess, impact of all of those other forms of abuse. I mean, you ran down that list and I was like, check, check, yeah. check. And it did, unfortunately, get to a physical point with me, which is when I eventually left. But I was very lucky. I mean, I, you know, family members in my life that were scared for me and, you know, obviously it ended up worst possible case scenario for you, which I'm sorry, but I think people think that they haven't reached that point yet so that they're okay. Yeah. But really these are all the signs yeah. that it, it could get there. It could definitely yeah. get there. Yeah. A lot of the red flags that I saw was probably a year into the relationship. And that's when I knew that I had to just start the process of disconnecting. Um, and that's when it got worse. And I noticed that it was the emotional abuse. And that's one of the things that, you know, I want people to understand is that don't listen to all the noise that person is telling you. You know, he was telling me that, where am I going to go? You know, where am I going to get this money to move out? Um, nobody's going to want me. You know, I, I have two kids and, you know, I'm going to tell your ex-husband that you're or a crackhead or a drug dealer. Like it was a constant, constant abuse. Don't give in to that. Yeah. Seek help because you're gonna need it. Um, and then once the process is over, of once you're away, go for therapy. I mean, I have to say that really helped me after the fact. Just- But they're just, young, still in therapy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still in therapy, so. Yeah. Oh, and it is nothing wrong with therapy. You know, I, I, I know maybe many, many years ago, people say, oh my God, you go to therapy. Now it's okay to go. So, you know, just because there's always going to be things once you are a, a victim and you survive that, there's always going to be some sort of trigger that's going to make you feel a certain way. And I yeah. still have them to, you know, today, but it's how you cope with them and what matters. And that's why you need to go to therapy to learn how to cope with those triggers that, so it doesn't affect you, it doesn't paralyze you like it did before. Yeah. You know, my kids say I'm crazy. I just tell them there's, <laughs> if I weren't crazy, they'd have nothing to base normal on. Uh, <laughs> well, you know what, you just gave me a new one-liner to tell my kids, because I get I that it. every day. I love it. It's <laughs> public, public service. Right? <laughs> So um, October 1st, right around the corner, and this will be airing the day of. So how, what can, and it's a two day event. What can we look forward to? How can we, um, it's a one day event, I'm sorry. One day, yeah, one day event. Um, what can we look forward to, the, uh, to uh, hearing? How can we um, continue to connect with all of you uh, to get help and resources um, in the future if we aren't able to make it to the event? So a couple things about the event. Um, you can register, and if you register for the event and attend, you can network with the speakers and other attendees. If you can't, or you're afraid to put your contact information into a registration process, we're gonna be live streaming it on the Victim's Voice YouTube channel. So you can just watch and nobody needs to know. Um, all the sessions will be recorded. All registrants will get uh, a link to a resource page, which will have resources from all of the speakers. Um, and we kind of frame this as an open house of information. So the audience is going to be some victims and survivors, uh, educators. We have 
Uh, the Cleary Center is going to be here. A middle school teacher is going to be talking about um, middle school age kids and how little training education gets. Um, we have, it, it's really built kind of on the premise of what to expect when you're expecting. Yeah. So all the things that um, everyone who's been through it knows about, but those who haven't don't. So we're just going to peel back the layers and answer all those what ifs. Yeah. Um, what if I call the police? What if I have to go to court? What court? What do I have control over? What about my pets? Um, all kinds of information. Yeah. Well, this has been, uh, once again, whenever I, we have these talks, it just, it's another reminder that um, they're so important and so necessary and so powerful. And uh, we hope that our listeners can obviously gain um, some light uh, and have another resource that they can rely on uh, if they should ever find themselves in this situation or know someone who uh, may be in. Because again, nine times out of 10, um, we, I think we do, we have like that spidey sense as women, uh, not, not, not to uh, knock you, Bill, but <laughs> I think just we, we know because we've been, I think because we've experienced it to some degree. I even understand. More, um, and we can, I mean, I know I can sniff it out uh, and I ask questions. I know, I, I like, I know I've been to enough therapy to know which questions to ask um, and to kind of pinpoint uh where you know where they could go but uh thank you thank you so much for sharing your stories i um and the work that you do which is so necessary and my hope and my prayer is that you know sooner than later we don't have to continue to have these talks and that this is something that if a victim were to find themselves in like just the first encounter they can actually act react know what to do know where to go so that this doesn't um, so this can end this the cycle Mm -hmm. you no, know, um, if I if I can interject one thing, you know, one one of the things that's so difficult, I know. I mean, I didn't go through this because my daughter was gone before I really knew what she was going through. But I've talked with so many parents, so many bystanders, so many friends that they have a difficult time having the conversation. You know, sometimes it's you you want to find something to to leave on their bed or say, look, you don't have to look at this now. You don't have to look at it this week. But that's also one of the reasons. And I, I felt like I would feel bad if I didn't show you the book, but that's the book. But what's so good about it is that it, although 320 pages, it's a very easy read. Um, so many people read it in two or three days, which I still find hard to believe, but I've heard it enough now that they can't put the book down. But it's also something that is not terribly expensive that can be put on somebody's bed at home if they're, if it's a high schooler or nowadays so many even college kids are kind of coming back to the house. And so you have more access and maybe have more access to what's going on and watching for the warning signs. But, but it's a compelling read because people get caught up in what happened to my daughter and what our family did with it. But then they also have interlaced in their other survivor stories. And then we talked earlier about warning signs and their other parts. So, so that's, uh, it's, it, it makes one heck of a, of a different kind of a leave behind, you know, for, for helping people oh. and, and it's and as best I can tell because I wrote it it's it's an interesting read people tell me so yeah. well, no thank you thank you so much and I think that that's a great uh, recommendation and suggestion is like if you don't know what to say uh, I know I've done that to friends like mm -hmm. I don't know what to say and I'll buy them a specific a book 
Here you yes. go. Uh, but again, thank you. Uh, we wish you continued success in all of your future endeavors. Uh, Ilse, thank you so much for connecting the dots and bringing light to this issue as always. Um, and know that you guys have a friend in Bella and whenever we can uh, be of resource to you, we're here. So thank you again for joining us today. Great. Appreciate Good it. Idea. Thank you. Thank you. Great.